Hello and welcome to Read All About It, the podcast where people talk about their favourite and not-so-favourite books. Join me, Paul Cuddihy, as I take each guest on the literary journey of their life, from their most cherished childhood read and a book they'd recommend to anyone, to the book they couldn't be paid to read again, and much more in between. So listen, enjoy, subscribe and spread the word about the Read All About It podcast. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Read All About It podcast. And I'm delighted to be joined on this episode by Gavin Bell, who is an award-winning travel writer. His wanderings from Antarctica to Zanzibar have also failed to diminish his passion for football and Motherwell FC in particular. Gavin previously worked as a features writer with the Herald newspaper, while he was also foreign correspondent for Reuters and The Times. He has written two travel books, Somewhere Over the Rainbow, Travels in South Africa, and In Search of Tusitala, Travels in the Pacific after Robert Louis Stevenson. Well, in 2020, Gavin published Because It's Saturday, A Journey into Football's Heartlands, which examines the professional grassroots of football. Gavin, welcome to the Read All About It podcast. Thank you, Paul. What struck me, actually, um, you know, obviously mentioned the, the fact that you were an award-winning travel writer and you've written two travel books. You've written a, a football book, but there is an element, obviously, I suppose, of, of travel within that, that you, you do go to the kind of, as I said, the grassroots of football and, and go beyond the big names and, and the big success and the, the big, you know, well-paid players and go and see how football connects communities and connects people. Very much so, Paul. It began really as a sort of kind of a boyhood dream. When I was a wee boy, I suppose like lots of wee boys, I kept league tables of the English and Scottish leagues. Uh, you cut them out of a newspaper and each week as the results come in, I would rearrange the teams according to the results of the day. To be honest, I, I knew next to nothing about these teams and hardly anything about where they came from, likes of Accrington, Stanley, Grimsby Town, etc. I'd always thought I'd, I'd love to go there, I'd love to see it, not just see the teams, but see the places. And eventually that's what I did. I went to a bunch of clubs uh, in England and Scotland. In the lower leagues, teams that... Uh, very rarely win anything other than the loyalty of their fans. And I found tremendous passion, commitment, and very close relations between uh, the fans and the teams. A much more intimate relationship uh, than you'll find in the, in the big clubs like Chelsea or Liverpool. These are teams that uh, local, very much local teams and they have they have the loyalty of generations of men and women and it's like a big family it's like a for many of the fans it's going to the game on the Saturday it's much more than a football match it's a social occasion that's bringing people together it's bringing communities together and it's vitally important to these communities some of which are are suffering from post-industrial decline and don't have problems to seek but uh, the Saturday game is uh, is the highlight of the, of many people's week. Because I suppose you know that way when people watch football and, and they all, always equate it with the see the highest levels of the English Premier League for example or the Champions League it's all about the high played players the glamour the winning as you say when you when you take it down into the lower levels you know to win a game sometimes can be the high point of, of the season so it is more than just the 90 minutes and it has to be because you have to have that sense of real belonging to a club if you know, you're maybe going through weeks and, and months and seasons where it's pretty grim in terms of the actual football results. Yeah, very much so. And it's, it's very much a personal experience. I mean, if you're, if you're at Berwick Rangers or Queen's Park or Accrington Stanley, you're, you're much closer to the teams, to the fans. I mean, often... Uh, the fans will go into the clubhouse afterwards and have a drink with the players and sometimes the managers. And also, you come across some some funny tales. I was talking to the kit man at Berwick Rangers and he was telling me that on one occasion he was acting as the, the physio and they were playing at Stenhouse Muir and one of the Berwick players got injured. So he ran on, fixed him up and came off one of the staff said that was an easy tenor and one of the subs says, well, 
what does that mean? It was an easy tenner. And he explained that if he managed to get the player going again, he got £10. But if the guy had to come off, he didn't get anything. So the sub just nodded at that. And then in the second half, the sub himself was called on. He was only on the pitch for five minutes and he collapsed in a heap. The physio went up and says, what's wrong with you? He says, there's nothing wrong with me. He says, but that's a five for each. <laughs> only in Scottish football. Because <laughs> I, I was wondering uh, how you went about choosing the specific teams that you ended up going and visiting and, and looking into those communities and those fans. Because obviously there's quite a lot of teams that you could have chosen in, in the lower leagues of Scotland and England. Oh, it was quite a whimsical choice. It was partly, partly geographical. I wanted a, a widespread of teams all, all over the country, from Glasgow down to, uh, down to Plymouth. But also, I mean, teams like Accrington Stanley that were dead and buried and then come back from the dead and ha- have done very well. Grimsby, a town that lost its fishing industry and lost its heart and soul largely, but it still clung on to the team. Places that had, had stories behind them, basically. And, and Queen's Park, of course, is until recently, it uh, had a proud record as holding on to the Corinthian ideal of amateurism. I mean, that, that was laudable. That was, that's worth celebrating and writing about. And as you say, that, well, Queen's Park, obviously, that's changed now. Um, it was interesting, I just touched on the introduction, that you're a Motherwell fan. And in the introduction to your book, you explain, and it's, it kind of sometimes goes to the heart of why people end up supporting the teams that they do. It can be passed on, as you said, from generation to generation, or it can be your first experience of whatever game, you know, that's like a classic fever pitch in a combi. It was Arsenal was the first team he went to see, so that was for him. Or it's, yeah. you know, if you've, you've passed on from your, your father, grandfather, whoever, because I think you see in the introduction, you, you moved when you were quite young from Motherwell to quite near Ibrooks. But by that point, you were already, that was your Motherwell fan for life. We were only seven when, when we moved to Glasgow. And so it was kind of automatically assumed that living near Ibrox, I'll be supporting Rangers. But even by then, I'd been to Firth Park and I came from Motherwell and that was it. As simple as that. You know, they say that real fans don't actually choose their football club. It's either the team their dad supports or where they come from. And that's it. And I've, I've never regretted it, to be honest, because... As I say, that you know, if you support a big team, you kind of there's there's almost a an air of entitlement to, to winning games. Whereas when you support a team like Motherwell, when you win, it's a nice surprise. Yeah, and, and we're obviously we're recording this after a weekend where well Celtic were already knocked out of the Scottish Cup, which is my team, and then obviously sadly uh, Motherwell followed suit as well at the weekend. <laughs> so we'll both just have to wait till next season to try and, and win some silverware again. I'm afraid so. <laughs> in terms of the podcast, the aim is just to take you on the literary journey of your life. And if I can take you right back to childhood and ask you to choose your favourite book from childhood. And the, the first one, the main one that you'd mentioned is The Story of Dr. Doolittle by Hugh Lofting. What was it about that book that's, that stayed with you? It was travel, adventure, excitement, Africa and... The essence of the story is that Dr. Doolittle can converse with all animals. He learns to talk to all animals from his parrot, Polynesia, um, and he goes off to Africa to cure a monkey epidemic and has lots of adventures. He's shipwrecked and captured by pirates. For a wee boy, the heady sort of scent, if you like, of Africa and the exotic surroundings and the fact that he could converse with animals the fact that he was a good guy, you know, he did his best to help animals that, that needed his help. It was just, it caught the imagination, Paul. It fired the imagination. I suppose it was, it was partly responsible for my life of travel. So do you think that kind of, even from that early age, just embedded that, I suppose, fascination and, and curiosity to, I suppose, expand your horizons? Yeah, very much so. I mean, I, I was very lucky because... My dad had a, a good library at home. We didn't have a television in those days. And so we read books. And he always had books in the house that, that I would enjoy, like the Knights of the Round Table and 
all sorts of adventure stories like that. And then my mum bought me the Famous Five and uh, the Just William series by Rich Crompton. They were stories about children, but children that had that had adventures. Because I loved when I when I was just looking into the story of Doctor Doolittle, and I loved the I suppose the kind of subtitle of the book, which is being the history of his peculiar life at home and astonishing adventures in foreign parts. And I think that that sounds brilliant. That's right, exactly. I mean, it's, it, it drew me in right away. Like most children, I liked animals. And the fact that a man could magically converse with them was just opened up a whole new world for me. Because I, I suppose a lot of people would be familiar with either the, the film that came out as well in the late 60s or the kind of more, more recent remakes of the familiarity of that story without maybe necessarily... Well, you would hope maybe even from that would then go and maybe investigate the books. Yeah, well, to be honest, I've never seen any film representations of it. I've only read the books. And I think that, you know, films can convey so much, but I've always felt that books convey much more in terms of firing your own imagination. You have your own interpretation of the characters and the plot and the novels and the sentiments that they arouse. I think that's, for children particularly, I I think that's very important. They can read a story and imagine for themselves what's happening rather than just staring blankly at a screen and being told what's happened. And, And one thing I thought was really, which I loved finding out was apparently... The stories of the, the illustrations at first, or do, the character of Doctor Doolittle. It was when Hugh Lofton during the First World War was was sending letters home to his children from the trenches, and he obviously was just illustrated letters, and that's when Doctor Doolittle first emerged, just in, in letters and I suppose stories to his children. I didn't know that. My goodness, <laughs> that's a fascinating backstory, Paul. Because I love that idea as well. Because obviously he's then. Uh, remotely telling stories to his kids because he can't actually do it because he's not there. But then I suppose there's a form of escapism for him as well in this grim period of his life, you know, and and what he must be seeing the horrors of the war, but then is escaping into that world that he's creating and then passing it on to his children. Yeah, fascinating. I can sympathise with that clearly. In terms of taking you on then from childhood to the kind of more teenage formative years book and the book you chose, I presume it's the, the kind of series of James Bond books by Ian Fleming? Books have, from the very start, have played an important part in my life, both personally and professionally. When we moved from Motherwell to Glasgow, it was the late 60s and Glasgow was a pretty rough, tough place in many respects in those days. And so... When my dad got me a library ticket, it was it was my refuge. Cardonald Library in the south side of Glasgow was my university, really. I still remember the the smell of the place of the of the books and the excitement in, in going in and you know when you latch on to a series like James Bond, for example, or even earlier the, the Just William stories. You hear that there's a, a new title come in. The excitement is tremendous. James Bond, of course, was so sophisticated and so exciting. <laughs> it's interesting you say about the libraries. And I was talking to somebody recently, just it was in the back of the news, I think, that Glasgow Life, who administer all the, the libraries in, in the city at the moment, too, the libraries aren't going to reopen. And obviously, you know, that's a blow for people in the, those areas that want to read. But as you say, it can be, it's more than just the, the books that are there. And, you know, for people of all ages, it's giving you that free access to, to books, to education. It's a social thing. It's, it's something that I think in communities, it should be one of the things that's preserved rather than cause for cost-cutting measures. It means so much to, I was going to say particularly young people, but but also older people as well. You know, I maybe haven't got all that much money to buy books. And there's an atmosphere in libraries of study and thoughtfulness. And there are so many ideas and imaginations and thoughts in libraries that aren't, that aren't actually mined as much as they should be. Not as they're vitally important. As you say, like, I think we all remember when we were younger and 
having that library card, and particularly when you got to the age where you could just go to the library yourself, you weren't taken by your parents. And it's almost like the world is your oyster, that there's all these books, more books that you can ever imagine reading, and you can, exactly. you can take any of them. You know, they say that a kid in it, it's like a kid in a sweet shop. That was the way I felt in a library. I mean, in terms of the, the James Bond books, obviously, you know, I ask you about the, the Doctor Doolittle films. Have you watched the James Bond films and how do they compare to the books for you? It's, it's a different experience entirely, Paul. The James Bond, I imagine, I, I suppose Sean Connery was closest to the uh, how I imagined uh, Bond. Sophisticated, ruthless, loyal. But I don't know, I, again, I, I think reading the books was a much better experience in many ways, in the sense that it was richer. Like the characters were richer and stronger, and the impressions were stronger. Compared with docilely watching a screen, I think the fact that, again, Fleming fired the imagination, that's, that's the secret of it. We're going to, later on the podcast, we'll be talking about John le Carre. And I often wonder... When I think of him and then Ian Fleming, and it's almost like two sides of that Secret Service coin. There's the glamour and the, the adventure of James Bond, and then John le Carre was much more with things like George Smiley as a character. There's a different side to that, that world of espionage and the Cold War intelligence yeah. war. John le Carre is an, an interesting character. I'm reading The Pigeon Tunnel at the moment, which is kind of stories from his life. Le Carre is... is much an enigma as the characters that created. Uh, he was a magician of plot and counterplot, a master storyteller. You know, he lived in a world of smoke and, smoke and mirrors and cross and double cross. A lot of the writing is all about the moral ambiguity of human motivation. And it draws you in. I, actually, I had a, an interesting experience with Lacari a few years ago. I read uh, The Constant Gardener. And in uh, an epilogue, he wrote something. I'll, I'll read it to you now. He said, If you should uh, ever chance to find yourself on the island of Elba, please do not fail to visit the beautiful old estate called La Chiusa de Magazzini. They have a few cottages that you may rent. There is even an oil room where those in search of answers to life's great riddles may seek temporary seclusion. And for a travel writer, of course, that was, that was great bait. To cut a long story short, I ended up going to that, that wine estate and writing an article about it for the Daily Telegraph, a travel article. As a courtesy, I sent a note to, to the carry through his publisher, just telling him what I've done, and thought no more about it. But then I received a, a handwritten letter from him saying that, you know, he'd Thanks very much for, for that, and he thought that was great fun. But in the letter, he revealed a strange experience had, had shaken him during the writing of, of The Constant Gardener. And he had imagined and written, uh, written of a setting like La Cusa before arriving on Elba, and he'd been astonished to discover it existed much as he visualised it. He said um, it was actually the most extraordinary little episode in my writing life because I had already described the place in draft by the time I arrived right down to the oil room without knowing it existed. When my wife and I arrived there one early evening having asked our taxi driver carelessly whether he knew of such a place we both got the shivers. I barely had to change a word. <laughs> Amazing. So in a sense, I ended up in the pages of one of his novels. <laughs> Obviously, we were mentioning James Bond there. And even after Ian Fleming's death, in recent years, there have been various other writers that have continued, I suppose, that the literary franchise. Have you read any of those books? And, and no, I haven't. Oh, no, I'm not really interested. Because I find that it happens every now and again. It's a strange thing that the character almost outlives the creator. Yeah, that's right. Obviously, you mentioned, and we spoke at the start, maybe the seeds of your interest in, in terms of travel writing. How, how did that become um, more formalised into something that you actually started to do in terms of your career and sort of establish a reputation in that, in that field? Well, the simple answer is Robert Louis Stevenson. 
when I was a foreign correspondent in Beirut during the, the civil war there, I got a hold of a, a second-hand book, a selection of travel essays by various writers, including Robert Louis Stevenson. It so happened, I started reading it when um, there was some fighting outside my, uh, very close to my house. In fact, there were tracer bullets coming through the bathroom window at the time. There was a particular essay by Stevenson called A Night uh, Spent in a Pine Forest, and it was from a book called uh, Travels in the Cévennes with a Donkey, where uh, Stevenson crossed the Cévennes region with a donkey. I'll read it to you now because it made such a big impression on me at the time. I have not often enjoyed a more serene possession of myself, nor felt more independent of material aids. And yet, even while I was exulting in my solitude, I became aware of a strange lack. I wished a companion to lie near me in the starlight, silent and not moving, but ever within touch. For there is a fellowship more quiet even than solitude, and which, rightly understood, is solitude made perfect. And to live out of doors with the woman a man loves is of all lives the most complete and free. Imagine I was reading that while there was a gunfight going outside my house. The contrast was fairly dramatic. And I resolved there and then that one day I would go to that forest with a girlfriend. And I did. I retraced his travels by bicycle. And that led to a greater interest in Stevenson, the man, as opposed to just the writer. And so I read a lot of collections of letters and essays, etc., etc. And then a few years later, I realized that the centenary of his death was, was approaching uh, in 1994. So I had the idea of retracing his travels in the Pacific. As you may know, he, he traveled across the Pacific and, and settled in Western Samoa, where he died. And that set me off on essentially travel writing. That book won the British Travel Book of the Year. And subsequently, the Daily Telegraph asked me if I'd like to write a travel article for them. And one thing led to another. And that's how the travel writing started, thanks to RLS. I suppose that's a nice starting point to, to be able to, to cite him as, as your major influence because I suppose that's the real skill in travel writing. It's bringing, you know, that, you know, the way he did with you is, is almost putting the reader in that same position that he's in to, that, to the point that you can envisage it, but also it kind of sparks that curiosity to, once you put the book down and the article down, you want to then go and experience it for yourself. Yeah, very much so. I mean, John Steinbeck is one of my favourite authors. He wrote a, a book and there was a, an introduction in it, essentially about the craft of writing. And he said that a writer must take the reader on a journey, must take them to where they are. So if they're on a ship, they must feel the spray of the, of the waves, they must feel the wind, they must see the sky, they must hear the cries of the sailors bringing it alive, essentially. Steinbeck, of course, was a master of that with his sparse writing about the Great Depression. It's interesting. I was, I was listening recently to an interview with the author John McGregor, whose new, I think his new novel, the start of it's set in Antarctica, and then it's, something happens there, and then it's the aftermath of that back, I think, in the UK. He mm -hmm. was saying he'd actually gone to Antarctica because he wanted to actually experience what it was like before he started writing about it so he didn't fall into the, the trap of writing cliches of how people would envisage Antarctica because so few people have been to it you know they would then have an idea from maybe things that were seen in tv on the big screen or, or read so he actually wanted to I suppose develop how he would describe it so that people get a real sense of what it was like and he could only do that from having been there himself yeah I, I've been to Antarctica and it's a land of extremes in fact most of the places that I visit that I find fascinating, there's one place that I think is, is arguably the worst place on earth is sub-Antarctica, is Elephant Island, which is where Shackleton's men sheltered while he went off on his, his rescue mission. I remember I was on a small expedition, an adventure ship, and this island loomed up out of the, the mist and it was a huge dark cliff with a 
tiny, tiny stony beach where the men had sheltered. And it was the gloomiest, most forbidding, horrible place I'd ever seen. I couldn't wait to get away from it. <laughs> I suppose that the other, the other thing that strikes me as well, that I suppose one of the great joys of being a travel writer is you're, you're maybe getting to places in the world that the rest of us are only reading about. Yeah, I'm, I'm very lucky, really. I mean, it's, it's um, so many rich experiences, but it's not just the places, it, it's the people, Paul, it's the people you meet that bring these places alive, the different cultures and traditions, and the way of looking at things, the way of life. It's always it's refreshing, it's stimulating. I, I remember one time uh, I was in French Guyana, I'd just arrived from Scotland and there was a, a torrential rainstorm. We didn't get to the, the hotel until about two in the morning. The hotel was surrounded by jungle and this torrential rain was hammering down on the trees. And it was about two in the morning and I couldn't go to bed. I just stood transfixed by the, the sound and the, and the sense, all the heady sense of the rain and uh, it was just it was a wild perfume a wild exotic perfume wonderful <laughs> absolutely i'm sure people who uh, listen to this i'll be listening with a fair degree of envy yeah i mean uh, graham green described something similar in a in a, in a smaller way he was at uh, raffles in singapore and he describes raindrops falling on a pantry he referred to the voluptuous trembling of a leaf. And the trembling of a leaf became the, uh, the title of one of his short stories. But voluptuous trembling of a leaf contrasts a wonderful image. Well, you're listening to the Read All About It podcast with me, Paul Cadet, and my guest, Gavin Bell. Gavin, we're on to a book that you'd recommend to anyone, and that book is Of Mice and Men by John Steinbeck. Yeah, Steinbeck, generally, his writing was sparse to the point, deeply moving in this particular case of Mice and Men. It's essentially about two migrant field workers in California during the Great Depression. George Milton, who's an intelligent but uneducated man, and Lenny Small, who's a bulky, strong man, but mentally disabled. They dream of owning a piece of land one day, but fate conspires against them. It's a, a tragic story, but deeply moving about the hardship suffered by these migrant workers in the Great Depression. Steinbeck writes very movingly and tellingly in a straightforward way about the dilemmas and the relationships between them. To be honest, I don't know why, it just struck a chord with me. And when I put the book down, I sighed. I remember sighing and thinking, wow, it just struck home. Who knows why a book strikes a particular chord with anyone? I mean, you can, you can talk about the, the scale of the writing or, or the plot or whatever, but at the end of the day, it's a as you know, it's a very personal thing, and it just it's just struck home with me. It was yeah. a real tragedy. Because I always what I always love about that book is in such a short space of time, he paints such a, a vivid picture, and as you say, a story that you're totally engaged in, and, and I think it does for anybody that reads it, it does leave a lasting impression, and it has you know over the years it's become I suppose it is a classic. It's also got that Scottish connection, I suppose, of where the title comes from as well. Yes, indeed, from Robbie Burns. <laughs> yeah. Um, from a tour to a mouse. It's interesting that also, as well as, I suppose, being considered a classic, it's also, in America, it's one of the books that is, is often in the list of books that are most challenged by you know various groups of individuals for it being taught either in public schools or stocked in libraries, just for, for a whole variety of reasons, either the, the content or the language, which, again, when you read it, I, find that, I always find that very strange, actually. Culture has changed, uh, fashion has changed, for the better, I think, in terms of awareness of causing offence for racial or other reasons. But I think of Mice and Men at the time, I mean, I haven't read it since, 
I didn't find it in the least bit offensive. I found it strong and deeply moving, but I, I sometimes wonder if perhaps we're just bending over backwards a wee bit too much to satisfy people complaining about old books because they were of their time and the Great Depression in California was a hard time. I mean, are you? I, I know you also mentioned Steinbeck's Canada Row series. I take it you're a, you're a big fan of John oh, Steinbeck then? Yeah, very much so. I remember that the opening line of Canary Row was, Canary Row in Monterey in California is a poem, a stink, a grating noise, a quality of light, a tone, a habit, a nostalgia, a dream. <laughs> How's that for an intro to a book? <laughs> it went on, as you, as you, as you probably know, the principal characters are a bunch of down and outs who are befriended by a, a doctor and a, a Chinese grocer. And they're continually trying to, to repay their, uh, their kindness and their generosity, and they're always getting it hopelessly wrong. They became friends of mine, Doc and the boys, to the extent, you know, Canary wrote her tea of that, and there was another one. When they were finished, I, I felt bereft. In fact, when I was reading the last one, I was, I was spinning it out a, a chapter a week. And then, of course, when it was finished, it was finished and it was gone. And I, I really missed them. Because I read quite recently Tortilla Flat, uh, mm. which somebody had recommended to me, yeah. uh, which I thought was brilliantly funny. Because I'd read Grapes of Wrath would be the one I would be my favourite. Red East of Eden, uh, of Mice and Men. I, I just think he's, a, I think he's a wonderful writer. Yeah, oh, absolutely. Do you find it difficult if, if somebody does say to you, can you give me a book recommendation? Is, or is that something that, that often happens? People are picking your brains for, for something good to read? Not too often. I mean, I, I, no shortage of, of recommendations in writers. I mean, I, Giovanni Guareschi is one of my favourite authors, the Don Camillo stories. Have you read any of them? Uh, no, I haven't, no. The principal characters are a communist mayor and a Catholic priest in post-war Italy. And they're the best of friends and the worst of enemies at the same time. And it's a parody of the communist-Catholic conflict in, in Italy just after the war. The stories are hilarious and they're full of humanity and compassion and wisdom and humour. The Christ in, on the cross in the priest chapel is... Essentially, God or the priest's conscience. He goes to him every once in a while and says, Oh, this Peponi, this mayor is, is impossible. What, what do I do? And then he, he gets compassionate wisdom from Christ on the cross. Guareschi is definitely worth reading. The stories of Don Camillo are, are just life enriching. I'd highly recommend them. That's uh, certainly one I'm going to take away from this podcast, actually, that I'll, I'll definitely investigate. The other one uh, is George Mackay Brown. I suppose you've read some of his. Do you know, it's one of those ones, I've got a couple of his books on my bookshelf, but like a lot of books, I've got the books, I've not got around to reading them yet. Oh, he's a great lyrical writer, and he writes a lot about sailors going off from um, Orkney to the Hudson's Bay Company. I, I actually interviewed George before he died, in his house in Stromness. And this to me is a, a magician of, of words who created the most wonderful characters and images and adventures. And he wrote them all with a biro pen on a bit of paper on his kitchen table by hand, all of them. And then he gave, he gave these uh, handwritten notes to a lady down the road who passed them out in a typewriter and sent them to his publisher. That's brilliant. I mean, that's really old school, isn't it? Yeah, very much. So. It was a, a little Formica kitchen table. <laughs> well, do you know, it's funny, like I find, even if I'm scribbling away, I always like to do it longhand first, even before mm. I, I even think about putting it on a laptop. Because when you are transcribing it, that's your first edit, I suppose. But I just, I just like the feel of pen on paper. I agree, although uh, when I'm writing my books, I'm using a laptop. I mean, in terms of, I was going to ask you, actually, that I'd mentioned the, the two travel books that you've written, the football book that came out last year. Have you ever thought yourself about going into to fiction writing or is it always non-fiction with that kind of element of travel within it that, that you enjoy the most? I think it's the non-fiction. 
I don't think I have the brain, the mentality, the character to create other characters. I think my strength is in descriptive writing, largely, and interviewing people and, and getting their life stories, which I think are, are often uh, every bit as interesting, if not more so, than, than fictional characters. Obviously, it's something, especially if it's something you've done for a, a number of years, and evidently it's what you, as you say, it's what you enjoy the most as well. And I think you've said it a couple of times, it's not just the places you visit, you know, whether that was for the travel books or whether it's for the, the football book, but it's the people who are the, are the stories, really. That's right. Although, um, to be honest, my, my journalistic career almost crashed and burned at the first hurdle when I was a, a trainee sports writer at the Sunday Post and the Dundee Courier. I went to my first match at, at Love Street. I turned up with my, my new press card and sat beside the press box because there wasn't room in the press box. And when the game started, something occurred to me that I hadn't, something wasn't quite right and I couldn't figure out what it was. And eventually I realised that the players had come on with dirty shorts. Eventually I, I summoned up the courage to ask one of the big sports writers why they had come on with dirty shorts. And he looked at me and he says, uh, are you Gavin Bell? I said, yes, I am. My dad was a well-known freelance, and so I must have looked like him. And he said, what time did you get here, son? I said, 10 to 3, just before the kickoff. He said, it's an early kickoff. This is the second half. <laughs> I had already filed 100 words on what I thought was the first half. I don't think I actually started crying, but I was close to tears, and the guy took one look at me and says, right, come on, this is take me to your phone. So he went to my phone and uh, he said, I'm calling for Gavin Bell. Have you sent as the first report been published yet? And he said, no. I said, well, scrap it. He said, spike it. He says, uh, this is a replacement for it. And he saved my bacon. <laughs> that's brilliant. That's a, I mean, that's a really nice, because it's, I suppose, especially sports reporting back then, especially, they've been quite gruff and uh, quite tough oh. as well. So... Oh, oh, very much so. <laughs> the guy thought I was taking the piss. <laughs> the thing was, I had to file 100 words before kickoff and then 100 words halfway through the first half. So. I love that it's idea hard. that you think that they all, they all came on the pitch at the start of the game where I'm dirty. <laughs> <laughs> well, there you go. <laughs> if I can take you then from a book that you would recommend to anyone to a book that you couldn't be paid to read again. And the one that you've chosen is Three Men in a Boat by Jerome K. Jerome. I wanted to read it because, as you probably know, it's, a, it's about a two-week boating holiday on the Thames from Kingston to Oxford. And I wanted to read it because for quite a few years, I lived at Hampton, which is very close to the Thames at uh, Kingston. I used to go running and walking by the river there. So I, I knew the river and I thought, oh, that'll be interesting. I'll be writing about places I know about. The book was actually, it was written in 1889 and it was initially intended to be a serious travel guide with accounts of local history along the route. But humorous elements took over to the point where serious passages seem a distraction to the comic novel. And one of the most praised things about Three Men in a Boat is how undated it appears to modern readers. So they say, I didn't find that at all. I found it in the country extremely dated. Some classic novels like the, the Russian classics or the French classics written in the, the century before, um, they're not dated. They're timeless. They're, their characters are timeless. But Three Men in a Boat, to me, was a sort of, ham-fisted comedy of Edwardian manners that, frankly, I, I found silly and I lost patience with it. And I just, I think that the humour was so public school, old-fashioned, but I just lost interest in it. It wasn't a badly written book, far from it. He was a clever writer, but it just struck a false note with me. You know, it's like we were talking earlier about some books, you don't know why they strike a chord with you, like Of Mice and Men. Three Men in a Boat just struck a flat chord. So I take it you wouldn't end up going on and read the sequel? The cycling book? No, I didn't. 
would that be classed as a, a travel book of sorts or just a different type of? Oh, I suppose it would be. Yeah, very much so. Yeah, you're travelling along the length of the river. And that's, you know, travel books generally I find interesting, but three men in a boat sank without trace. I suppose it, you kind of mentioned it earlier on that when we were talking about Steinbeck, that sometimes it's hard to quantify why one person would like a book that another person wouldn't. And, and not only that, that even within two people who like a book, why it might have a, a really deep and profound impact in one person and another person will say, I enjoyed that, but then they don't have that same, same feeling. I suppose that's the magic of books in general. That's exactly the magic of books, Paul. Who, who knows what fires the imagination or strikes a sympathetic chord? But the fact is that books do, and books leave lasting impressions. I mean, I think that with the exception of Dr. Zhivago, which I thought was just an amazing film, books, generally speaking, leave deeper, more lasting impressions with me than films. I mean, I, th- I think just in, as a general rule, we've kind of touched on it already in this, that, that I would just think oh, the book is always better. Um, the only one I've, I can think off the top of my head that I... I enjoyed the film of The Graduate more than I actually enjoyed reading the book. But that is the kind of, I suppose it's the, the exception that, that proves the rule. And it goes back, I think, to what you said right at the very start when you were talking about your childhood book. It's allowing you that space for your imagination to paint the pictures of what it is you're reading, which the big screen or small screen doesn't allow you to do. It's telling you everything. It's giving you all the information and doesn't allow you to paint your own pictures. And screens... For all the modern CGI, screens are are very limited compared with books in the sense that, I mean, I went through a phase of reading H.G. Wells' stories of mystery and imagination, science fiction, if you will. I don't think there's any way that CGI would have created the vivid images and lasting impressions that the written word that H.G. Wells' written words created with me, with these worlds of mystery and imagination. That's what it's all about at the end of the day, because he wrote about the worlds, but they're my worlds. They're the worlds that I saw in my mind's eye, created by him. And I think that's, that's much stronger than, than anything I could see on screen. I also think as well, it's no matter how good the film or the filmmaker is, it's impossible to completely translate what you read in a book onto a screen because you've got the space of three, four, five hundred, five hundred pages to tell a story. You might only have an hour, an hour and a half to tell a condensed story. So by its very nature, you don't tell the full story. And also, in a sense, it's the reader's story. The writer has written it, but the reader creates it in a way in, it, in their own imagination. That's much stronger than, than watching something visually because it's your story and it's your character. You see them and you hear them and you feel for them in a way that no one else does. No one else does. It's a very personal experience and it's, so it's much richer for that. Gavin, we're on to the, the last of your book choices. We mentioned it earlier on in the podcast, the book that you're currently reading or the last book you read, it's The Pigeon Tunnel. John le Carre's memoir, which came out in 2016. Mm. Obviously, sadly, he died just around Christmas time in 2020. Had you read a lot of his novels? Is that why you, you were quite keen to read the memoir? To be honest, it was after I, I received a couple of letters from le Carre, totally unexpected, and it was very kind of him. And I was very touched. And there were handwritten letters. They weren't typed out or anything, and it just... When, it, when he died, that came back to me, and I wrote about it again in the Telegraph after his death, about receiving the letters. I hadn't written about that before, uh, so I wrote a, a piece for the Telegraph travel pages. Also reading obituaries about his life, I had enjoyed Le Carre as a writer and a creator of spy novels and about moral ambiguity and smoke and mirrors that hidden world of his. But after his death, I took more of an interest in Le Carre as a man. What, what kind of man was he? What kind of life did he have? I actually wasn't aware that, that he'd written The Pigeon Tunnel. It was just a bit, bit of research and discovered it. I thought, well, well, that's fascinating. And it is fascinating. It, it's an account of 
some of the adventures and, and episodes in his life. In fact, there was one um, there was one from Beirut when I was there. He, he wrote a story about uh, a parrot in the Commodore Hotel in Beirut that could perfectly mimic the sound of a machine gun fire. <laughs> that's, that's both funny and tragic at the same time, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it's, it, that parrot was very well known and the Commodore Hotel was the, the hotel used by foreign correspondents when they were in town. And that parrot was one of the great characters of the, of the hotel and the war. <laughs> Because I find that, you know, that the idea of him, you know, just, as you say, just sending you some handwritten notes. And I just love that idea of, you know, when you think of his reputation and stature, but still having that, I suppose, that humility in a way of being able just to acknowledge good writing when he, when he reads it elsewhere. I mean, I'm a literary pygmy compared to him. He's a giant um, of the literary world. And yet he, he was so touched by the fact that I'd, I'd written about his his uh, wine estate in Elva that he, that he responded. And that said a great deal about the man. That said a great deal in his favour. And because I thought it was quite funny recently, there was, um, I think he, just prior to, to him dying, he actually he took out Irish citizenship. I think it was partly in, in response to his opposition to Brexit, etc. which I think there was a kind of social media, not debate about it, but just obviously some people kind of been slightly mischievous saying, well, Ireland's now claiming him because he, he'd renounced his, he's turned his <laughs> back on the UK. Yeah, no, no. in fact, in, his, in one of his letters, he did refer to to Brexit in less than complementary terms. In terms of, you know, for example, your own reading, do you, do you read a lot of travel writing yourself just to not quite see who the competition is, but just because it's a kind of area of writing that you, you enjoy yourself? Are you Can you appreciate that in, in others as well? Um, not particularly, to be honest. I generally don't read travel books. You're more of a fiction writer, uh, reader then? Yes, yes, very much so. Well, well fiction and, and fact-based so autobiographies. I went through a phase where I was enjoying plays, H.G. Wells, his plays. I think generally, as a travel writer my, myself, I enjoy travel writing, obviously, but there are, there are very few travel writers appeal to me in the sense that they're taking me to places I want to go. I'd rather just go myself and write about them. I suppose that's the good thing about being a travel writer, I suppose, isn't it? Yeah, very much so. I mean, I'm, I can't begin to tell you how lucky I am or, or I have been in my life to have these opportunities to travel the world wherever I, I like, basically. It's constantly um, a source of amazement to me that people have been prepared to pay me money to do something I've always wanted to do, reading and writing. Just finally, Gavin, before we, we finish up, obviously I mentioned the, the book that you brought out last year on the journey into football's heartlands. Are you working on anything else just now in terms of, of another book? I'm thinking of something. I have a, a two-year-old daughter. I had a, a late in life. She's a wonderful wee girl. And... My dad was always on at me to write a book of memoirs as a foreign correspondent. And I've never been tempted to do that because I no longer have the fine detail of the experiences that I had. And also, I think there are so many ex-war correspondents who've written books that it's kind of old stuff. However, since starting travel writing, I've kept copious notes of more or less everywhere I've been, much more than I could ever use in a specific article, but I still have these notes. And what I was thinking of, possibly, was writing a book of travel essays and journalism, a tour around the world for my daughter. Uh, my daughter's name is Fintry, and I'd, I'd just call the book For Fintry. And basically, it would be an introduction to the world, the wonders of the world. It's, I mean, it's People talk about going to paradise after you die. I mean, as far as I'm concerned, this is paradise. I've been, you know, we've been very lucky here in Scotland. And um, the world is, is full of amazement and wonders and, and beauty. And I'd just like to introduce my daughter to some of the experiences I've had from Antarctica to Zanzibar. 
via Ayrshire. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's a, I, I think that's a really lovely idea as well. You know, as she gets older, to not just discovering the world, but then finding a wee bit about what you do and what you've done, because, you know, that quite, quite often, you know, anybody, it's their parents or just their, their parents, and sometimes it's either a mystery of what they do, or, or quite often kids aren't even interested in what you do. So it's quite nice if you can put that down as something that she, you know, she gets older and just discover yeah. a wee bit about you. Yeah, hopefully, um, you know, and it'll be a personal experience for her with me being her father. But hopefully I'll be able to convey a bit of a bit of wisdom, a bit of common sense and interest. Interest fire her imagination. Yeah, because that kind of what what struck me was there it's almost like whether it's either books that she reads as she gets older or it's it's your book, it kind of gets back to what you were saying right at the very start that it was reading those Doctor Doolittle books that first gave you that sense of adventure and wonder and wanting to go on and discover the world world for yourself. Exactly. If I can do anything like that for Finchie, if I can, if I can recreate Doctor L- Do Little for Finchie, I'll be a happy man. <laughs> well, listen, we'll look forward to that, as I'm sure she will as well. But Gavin, sadly, we we are at the end of the podcast. I have to say, I've I've really enjoyed chatting to you about your favourite books and also about, about some of your own writing as well. It's been a real pleasure. Well, thanks very much, Paul. It's been a pleasure talking with you. It's a real sort of desert island disc of books. Well done. What a great programme. Thanks for listening to the Read All About It podcast, and I'd love to hear what you thought about it. You can get in touch via Twitter at ReadAllAbout20, on Instagram at ReadAllAboutItPodcast, or you can send an email to ReadAllAboutIt at paulcuddehy.com. If you've enjoyed the podcast, subscribe, leave a review and spread the word. If you haven't enjoyed it, say nothing to anybody. But I do hope you can join me, Paul Cuddihy, next time on the Read All About It podcast. And in the meantime, keep reading.